Arthur was armed like only a king of his nobility could. On his head he wore a helm of gold graven with the semblance of a dragon. It shimmered fiercely in the morning sun, causing his men to be ever more proud. Upon his shoulders he bore the shield that was named Pridwen. On the inner side was painted the image of the Holy Mary, Mother of God. Girt to his waist was the mighty sword Caliburn, best of swords, forged within the Isle of Avalon and given him by the Lady of the Lake. The lance in his right hand was called by the name Ron. It was tall and stout, ready to do great slaughter. Well, King Arthur is ready for St. Paul's admonition to us this morning in our epistle lesson, lesson, isn't he? Put on the whole armor of God. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There is a great literary history of arming scenes, a motif used in many epic legends from Homer to Virgil to the authors of Beowulf and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Probably what most of you, what most people today know of it, comes from their experience of watching the movie version of The Lord of the Rings. In that story, Theoden, the king of Rohan, is armed for a final battle at Helm's Deep not expecting to survive the battle. I don't know if you remember the scene. It's quite a good scene in the movie and pieces of armor being put on him and he's handed his sword and his lance. And then he, remember, he's riding out on the horse. It's just like, raw, epic scene. Well, that's very much in the tradition. For those of you that read, have read some of the ancient epics, it's very much in that tradition. Not surprising uh, that Tolkien would include that. Now, we all know what this that I've just described to you is, right? And we've been told quite clearly, and should listen, after all, by the intellectual and celebrity elites, this is toxic masculinity. Now, they do have part of it correct. This is masculine. Our younger generations have been told for a number of decades now that masculinity is a bad thing. That it is truly toxic. I mean, do, do play guns not sell anymore at toy stores? I'm just somewhat confused by this whole world we live in. Masculinity is toxic. Everything that a man is usually naturally about is toxic. Have you noticed that this message is having an effect? We've got some serious problems in our culture. We really are raising young men to not know how to be men in our culture. Arguably, we've been raising boys, not men, in our culture. The number of young, available for marriage, smart, accomplished young women in our society continues to grow. They are having a bit of a hard time finding suitable husbands. This really is a culture-wide serious problem. And I will tell you right now that the clergy of our church have been talking about this for 20 years. 
It's not a surprise. We've been seeing the problems because we see it in our churches, our parishes all over the country. The church has to make a difference and talk about what a man of God looks like. Now, that obviously is book-length material, and I don't pretend to be able to accomplish that today. But I think all of us as a parish need to be thinking about this and how do we encourage a real biblical understanding of masculinity. I just read to our dinner table last week an essay by C.S. Lewis entitled The Necessity of Chivalry. He noted how hard it always has been to get the right balance of chivalry. So often the courage and might of a warrior finds itself looking like Hamas attacking civilians in Israel earlier this month. And the gentleness and civilized behavior of a man in society looks like milk toast. Kind of reminds me of that ubiquitous picture of Jesus. Oh, just knocking on the door of your heart. Oh, just. I've, I've always found that picture to be ghastly. And not, <laughs> let's put it this way, the Anglo-Saxons would not know who that guy was. Their Jesus, we're reading Anglo-Saxon literature in, in my English class. Their Jesus was a mighty warrior of God. And if you, you know, you've probably heard the dream of the rude part of it anyways, because I read part of it, an excerpt of it on Good Friday for a sermon. Go look that up and read the dream of the rude. And it's a personified cross talking about the experience. And he talks about the mighty warrior who mounted up on the cross. We have a hard time in our culture seeing that because the image looks like defeat. But what does the Bible say about Jesus on the cross? On the cross, he conquered Satan and death. So the Saxons got it right, and we moderns get it oh so wrong over and over and over again. So courage and might seems to go overboard. Civilized behavior looks like milk toast. And many of us are scratching our heads and wondering how we got so confused in our culture. St. Paul says we Christian men are to be warriors of God, fighting the fight with the armor of God. Unless we get confused, women are called to the same service as Jesus, the ultimate man of the world, because he indwells them as well through his Holy Spirit. But that's a wholly different sermon, so I'm not going to go there. Men are to be warriors as Adam was a warrior, defending his wife and family in garden. Adam failed. Jesus did not fail. Men are to be farmers as Adam was a farmer. Don't get me wrong. Don't go buy a plot of land and plant crops. You'll probably starve to death. Men are to work to provide sustenance for themselves as well as for their wives and their children. Men are made by God to work. If men don't work, they have problems. They are not fulfilling one of their most basic callings in life. So, in case you haven't noticed, warrior farmers, they are not a picture that is in vogue in America today. In fact, even the small farmer is not really a very popular you know, family farm. We're being overtaken by 
uh, corporate farming. And many farmers are fighting to keep their family farms alive. So this is not, warrior farmer is not a picture in vogue. There, this image, though, was exactly what brought about the most amazing feat of the ancient world, the Roman Empire. It's an empire, if you really calculate it well, that lasted from 750-something B.C. to 1450 A.D. from Eastern to Western Empire. It's overwhelming. Wow. The, the warrior farmer was the building block of the Roman Republic. The warrior farmer was what got that empire started. The farmer cared about his land and his cultivation of that land, and he would fight to defend it. Today, our young men too often don't care about anything except selfish gratification, pleasure, leisure time. The irony is that historically, leisure was seen as a means to be a better person, better educated, time to read and think. The nobleman's sons had the leisure to get the best education in the world because they didn't have to go to work in the kitchens, the stables, the fields each and every day. There is an amazing amount of leisure time in American culture today, but we don't see better educated students or population. We see hedonism on a scale not seen since the latter part of that same Roman Empire. The armor of God from our epistle lesson today looks like righteousness and peace, faith and prayer, standing with Christ to fight the mop-up action of his successful campaign against the devil and death. He's already won the victory. We can have confidence in that. Now we must fight the last battles with that in mind, knowing that we fight the devil and his minions in spiritual battle. But that we also fight the general sin of the world around us. And most importantly, in many ways, we fight ourselves and the sin that's in our heart that we don't want to get rid of, really. I mean, on one part we do, but on the other part we kind of like it. Men have to be men, as God described men. Responsible, dedicated, disciplined, Faithful and loyal, selfless, ready to help those in need, and ready to sacrifice for wife and family, and to defend those and sacrifice for those that cannot defend themselves. In his conclusion of his essay on chivalry, Lewis notes that we all must know that the knightly character is art, not nature. Something that needs to be achieved, not something that can be relied upon to just happen. Men must strive to be both a warrior and a farmer who can take his children out to ride the horse. He must be a gentleman in the dining hall, the dining room, the kitchen nook, and a ferocious beast of a man to fight when defending his family and values, and his way of life. This, my friends, is not natural. Naturally, men 
men tend to take what is not theirs, abandon their calling, abdicating their responsibility, and they will use their strength and power for selfish gains. That's what we men naturally will do. In our culture, men are lost. Not every man, but men. It is no wonder everything that God says a man should be is looked down upon in these crazy times. It's toxic. The church must stand up and speak the truth and tell men that they have a place in God's church. The training for manhood is a long, long climb. And some of us older men know because we're still climbing. It's not something you actually ever reach. It's much like just your Christian growth. But you become more and more manly the more holier you are. The tr- Many are far behind in this training in our culture now. Let's invite them to the place where they can understand the manliness of Jesus, like the Anglo-Saxons saw him, and imitate Christ. It's an art, and we all get it wrong a lot. But it has to be practiced and it has to be learned. Let's help our young men practice so that they can put on the armor of God and fight the fight with the church. Amen.